This is Creator Talks, episode number one, the best of 2016, part one. Welcome to the show. This is episode one of Creator Talks, the best of 2016, part one. I am your host, Christopher Calloway. Now, you're probably saying, Chris, why part one of a best of episode? You just started. Well, these are my best interviews working with Word of the Nerd as one of their contributors. And I've spoken to many creators uh, in the past several months, some of them very notable, legendary as a matter of fact, and others that are up and coming. So what I've done here is gone through the archives and picked the best of the best. Not that any of the people that I interviewed weren't great. They were all great. That's why I picked them. Um, I only speak to people that I really have an interest in speaking to, and that would make for a good interview. But um, I picked the best ones where uh, I did the best job so I can bring you the best podcast and bring you the best interview. Uh, so that's why I selected these particular ones as the best of 2016. Before we get to our new guests that I'm lining up for 2017. So first up is Neil Adams. I met Neil Adams at the New Jersey Comic Expo 2016 on November 20th. And uh, Neil is working on Commandy, uh, one issue of that book, number two for DC Comics. He's doing the art. You know Neil as the man who revitalized Batman. Working with writer Denny O'Neill, he put Batman back into the night and out of the light, once more the dark detective. So we speak with Neil about that. Um, and we also speak about his work with Continuity Comics, his own comic book company, where back in the 80s and in the 90s he had his own comic book characters. Uh, we talk about that and Neil's views on art and storytelling through art. So, without further ado, here is my discussion with Mr. Neil Adams. For Word of the Nerd, I'm Christopher Calloway, and it is day two of the New Jersey Comic Expo, November 20th, 2016, and I'm here with the legendary Neil Adams. It's day two, but also the last the day, last because they didn't have a Friday, so it's uh, Sunday. Short con. Now, you know Neil. You worked on Ben Casey. Everyone ben Casey. How old are you? My God. <laughs> old enough. Ben Casey. <laughs> and Wasn't Batman. that back in the Stone Age? That was back in the Stone Age, but that's, not, that's an important part of We used to bang rocks together to get fire. <laughs> And Batman, of course, you brought him out of the Batman. back into the dark as the great detective. Right. And another Stone Age character. Yeah. But I want to talk to you about your continuity studios and your continuity characters that you developed your own characters uh -huh, uh -huh. back in the eighties. Right. But I have them all. And so do I. <laughs> and you started anyway. that in Pacific Comics with Miss Mystic. Is that right? That was the first. Yes, one. I did, and they managed to go bankrupt, owing me sixty-two thousand dollars. So I thought, well, what do I do with this investment of time and, and money? And I decided maybe I ought to publish. So that's how I became a publisher. I mean, we had a, we had a Ms. Mystic, but we also had Echo of Future Past with, that we were doing with them. So I went and got properties and, and certain uh, licenses for European uh, publications. And I spent quite a bit of money. And I think we did, I don't know, maybe we started on issue one, but then they folded and... Uh, I, I really had no choice to, but to publish, which so I did. 
So that's how you got all that stuff. Well, what was the first year that uh, you went into publishing? Oh, you're asking me what year? Like I'm memorizing okay, well, years? Rough, I don't, rough no, rough I don't. Rough I have rough no rough. idea. Well, what was the first book? Was it uh, Ms. Mystic or well, did you was, start with Megalith? Uh, huh, good question. It was probably the second issue of, of Ms. Mystic because I did Ms. Mystic with the first issue with Pacific. And then we did the second issue and then, then Megalith. And uh, Echo of Future Past was the, really the big thing in which we introduced Bucky O'Hare and uh, the Monsters and uh, some European strips. And there was a lot of good stuff in there. I mean, it was, it was a lot of good stuff. Arthur Sidem stuff, Mudwogs, and uh, uh, The City. I'm a little hard-pressed to remember all the titles, but there was something like, I don't know, eight titles, and everybody had six or eight pages. So it was a, it was a big catalog of stuff, and they were all good. I mean, I got really good European artists Om, a thing called Om, which is about sort of weird cavemen on another planet. So anybody who gets those books, you got a you got a bevy of stuff to uh, take a look at. We're not, I mean, if if I publish again or if the company publishes again, um, uh, we won't be doing Echo, I think, because it's too hard a book to sustain. You, it, we're just not used to doing uh, six-page segments of a story and then collecting them. We're used to doing six issues of a comic book and collecting them into a graphic novel. That's become our standard. So the six-page thing was a European standard, and I followed that standard. But uh, we don't do that. We do six issues and then collect it. Because we want a whole, a whole story. If we're going to buy a comic book, we want it to be one comic book. We don't want it to be a bunch of stories. Right. So, you know, the I can see... Uh, uh, the continuity comic books coming coming back again um, uh, with uh, you know the, like DC and Marvel doing six issues and then collecting them into a, a novel. Okay, so basically coming out as miniseries. Yeah. Basically just ready to go. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you'll do a miniseries and you'll collect six, then maybe you'll collect a later uh, twelve mm -hmm. because they act, uh, they're a connected series. Um, I, I, it's hard to predict the future, but we're definitely not going to go with the European model. And I'm really acting as advisor because I'm sort of doing stuff for, uh, for DC. Yeah. I mean, that's my main turnout of stuff. I, I like to bring other artists along and, uh, and see what they do. So, uh, you know, I think, I, think, uh, I think I'm better served by doing things like Batman, maybe in armor now and then, you know. Uh, but... But uh, I'm kind of spread around the board, and, and there's an awful lot of things that I do. I mean, we just opened a gallery, I don't know if you know yes. it, at uh, Continuity, and uh, we took half our floor and, and uh, opened this gallery, and it's basically the Neil Adams Gallery, mostly because it's all my stuff. It's not the Neil Adams Gallery because I want to put my name on a gallery, it's just that all my stuff is in it. But we have something like uh, 50 frame pieces. I mean, it's a big gallery. It's not, you know, oh, well, here's a little corner of the, the, the studio. So when people come up, they're like, they're shocked at how many pieces we have up. And it's like a, a tour through, you know, my career. We've got Ben Casey, uh, a lot of Batman, uh, certain paintings, uh, illustrations, uh, large paintings. I'm sort of experimenting with a, kind of a pop art type of uh, painting technique where... Uh, you know those old pop art things where where the artist would rip off uh, uh, Russ Heath yes. and all those guys. Yeah. Well, uh, I thought you know what would be the upgrade of that? The upgrade of that would be the same artist doing his own stuff in a similar style, 
but doing it for the 70s. In other words, that stuff was for the 50s. Now we can do the 70s, and um, other artists can do it as well. I mean, it's not just me, but as far as I'm concerned, it is me now. So you get to see uh, large paintings of, say, a panel of Green Lantern, Green Arrow, or Batman, or whatever, uh, so that you, you uh, get to see the focus on the panel. You get to see the sense of it. You get to see uh, uh, see the, the whole idea of, of, of that pop art stuff was to take something that was cu uh, culturally innovative but unnoticed and then point a finger at it and say, hey, did you realize this? And the truth of the matter is that in the 70s, when I came along, there was another revolution. Everybody went, oh, you can do that stuff, like perspective and, and uh, realistic illustration. And, uh, you know, this is a new time. And a lot of new artists came in at that time and uh, just began and, and continued on. So you had, um, it was another revolution. So we're using the paintings as a way to focus on that revolution. And you like to bring artists along, you said. Uh, back when you started Continuity Studios, back in the 70s, you were doing work for other comic companies, kind of helping them along. Who were some of the artists that you worked with back in Continuity Studios, like back in the 70s, early Well, 70s? Trevor Von Eden, Tex, uh, Mark Texera, who had been doing some stuff for Marvel, but he, I mean, he did a fully painted comic book for us. He did a megalith that was painted cover to cover. Dennis Cowan, Dennis Cowan, uh, Tom Grinberg, yes. Tom Grinberg. Okay. Mark Beecham, Mark Beecham. I mean, if I sat here for a while and thought about it, there's a lot of guys, a lot of guys. And the, the, what's interesting is that uh, when we kind of discontinued publishing, we uh, uh, everybody that worked for Continuity was welcomed everywhere else because they had been they had received quite a bit of training at Continuity. So uh, it was a good career move for everybody. It worked out great. And uh, coming up, you have a, a part of the Commandy series coming up that you're doing a second I have the second issue, the second, second issue. issue. It's almost done. I'm inking it now. Uh, and it's a kind of an experiment, I guess, to do another Jack Kirby thing, which mm -hmm. I started myself doing uh, uh, New Gods with, uh, with Superman yes. and, uh, and the coming of Superman. Okay. And so they decided to go ahead and do Commandy. Uh, I wonder where the inspiration came from. Uh, so I got issue two. Uh, and I'm, I'm making as much as I can of it. And they, you know, they had an interesting thing. They had, a, you know, you get to do, uh, when you do command, you get to do, you know, Tyrannosauruses and gorillas and stuff. I'm doing a bird. I'm featuring this bird. So people get to see this uh, bird with a kind of an armor, uh, not armor, but a uh, havoc headgear on. It's kind of interesting. Kind of interesting. And you're going to leave a story at a cliffhanger that the next artist and writer can have. Well, to that pick seems up. to be the idea. I'm not so sure that they're they're filling in the the next writer on what the story is going to be. Okay. So he just gets to pick it up in the middle and and he gets to do the next chapter. I don't know that that's a smart idea. I think they have an overall concept, but since I'm not writing my issue, I I really don't know. I just all I know is that um, I'm following the first issue and the second issue, and that's pretty much it. It's just, it's like a lark, you know, it's just for fun. And playing with Jack Kirby stuff. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it even playing with Jack Kirby. I played with Jack Kirby stuff in the, in the Superman thing. I don't think that we're, I think we're sort of doing Jack Kirby, but nobody's going to 
uh, stick to Jack stuff religiously because after all it's it's gorillas and tigers and tyrannosauruses and stuff like that which is not necessarily the purview of Jack Kirby he just you know he just did all these subjects so um, dogs man dogs and stuff that's not exactly Jack Kirby Jack Kirby is new gods and that kind of stuff so I don't perceive it as being something where you where you're sticking religiously to what Jack Kirby did I think it's just a subject matter uh, whereas with the with the Superman I stuck to the characters very very different well, you know, speaking of Jack Kirby, when I would buy comic books as a kid, and there'd be a Jack Kirby cover, and then there'd be Jack Kirby on the interiors, I would be so excited. And that would be for Marvel Comics. Now, for DC, when I would buy a DC comic, and I would find your on the inside, I would be thrilled. Like, I picked up a copy recently, fairly recently, of uh, Aquaman, and inside was a backup story by you, or actually it was woven into the story of uh -huh. Deadman. Right. And that was a thrill. It's always a thrill to see your... Well, it was an Aquaman book with the Deadman story woven right. into the story. Right. That's right. right. Which was uh, an experiment, an intellectual experiment. How do you take uh, an Aquaman story that's already done and then weave a dead man story into it? Hard, but it worked out fine. Uh, I kind of like that sort of thing. I like it. The truth is that I really like the storytelling and the writing more than I like the art. Uh, if you're if you're an artist, it's it's a pretty pretty much automatic. You draw. Uh, if you're a writer, that's kind of a different thing. That's kind of a different story. You write and you create and you you um, uh, innovate uh, concepts and uh, innovative storytelling and stuff like that. The art is, you know, people focus on the art, and I appreciate that, you know, because they're fans. But it, the, one of the reasons that you remember my stuff is the storytelling. It's not. You know, I'm not a better artist than the best artists. I'm just as good. But from the storytelling point of view, I'm a very good storyteller. So I do things that make you remember the story. So uh, that's, to me, that's the focus. And I know people, people, oh, I love your art and all. But that's not what they're remembering. They're really remembering the story. You know, the drug issue. You're remembering the drug issue. You may be drawn well, but we're talking about heroin addiction. Uh, dead man, guy's dead. I mean, that's kind of an impressive concept. Um, uh, Batman, uh, revitalizing Batman, but it wasn't just revitalizing Batman. He, instead of hanging around in the daytime, walking down the street without little kids pointing at him and saying, hey, mommy, that guy's walking around in his underwear. We put him back at night, and we had him come through the window, and we had him do all the Batman stuff. He, I didn't just change the look of Batman. I really didn't change the look of Batman much at all. I changed what he did and how he acted so that he wasn't like the old television show. He was a creature of the night. So that was the difference. It wasn't that he was drawn better. It was that he was, he was Batman now again. And that's storytelling. I know, I, and I appreciate, believe me, I appreciate that people like my drawing. I, I think that's terrific. But that's not what it's all about. Even when you look at the stuff that's on my table, uh, there's prints of, of stories, of covers and stuff. You're really looking at the subject matter, not necessarily how well it's drawn, because to be perfectly honest, some of those covers are not drawn very well. That's Superman breaking chains on his chest. Mm -hmm. It's not a very good drawing, but it's you remember the concept and you remember the chains on the, uh, breaking on a Superman's chest, and it's, it's become tremendously iconic um, so that it's the idea that you remember, not the drawing. I've done some really good, well-drawn covers, and uh, 
they get ignored because the idea is either too complicated or too sophisticated or they don't relate to it or whatever else. I had a, I, had, I have a cover that I did for DC and it's, uh, uh, there's a cowboy uh, behind, behind a dead horse and he's defending himself from Indians that are attacking him who are on horseback. And the horse is dead that he's behind so he can't ride the horse. And the Indians are, as they're galloping forward, they're wheeling in their saddles and looking behind themselves and behind them there's a rocket landing. Now, I think that's a great cover. Nobody else does. They like Superman breaking chains on his chest. And there's nothing I can either do about it or care about because every time, I, every time out I try to do a good cover and I try to have a good idea, but it's up to the people to respond to it or not respond to it. So it doesn't matter how much sincerity you, you add to it or how much good drawing you add to it, it's whether or not the idea appeals to people and touches them where they want to be touched. And so, you know, the Batman Joker uh, cover with the Batman on the on the card, on the playing card, doesn't even make any sense. This is the, I, you can't put somebody on a playing card, but it appeals to everybody, whereas something else might not. Just it's just the way people are. So you never go to the artist to get a to get a criticism. You never go to an artist to get a judgment. He, he doesn't know. He does, you don't. You never know when you do a job, what's going to happen. Well, thank you so much, Good. Neil. On the cutting edge then and on the cutting edge now, Mr. Neil Adams. Neil, thank you so much for your time. Bye-bye now. And that was the always insightful Mr. Neil Adams, a great storyteller. You know, he's a great interview, always has great stories to tell about his work in comics. I always learn something new. Um, that same day at the New Jersey Comic Expo for Word of the Nerd, I did an interview with Mr. Peter David. Now, Peter had a long run on The Incredible Hulk as writer. He also did the Hulk Future Imperfect Prestige series, Prestige Format series. And he also worked on X Factor and is currently working on Spider-Man 2099. And so again, that morning on November 20th, 2016 at the New Jersey Comic Expo, on behalf of Word of the Nerd, I had a conversation with Mr. Peter David. I'm here with writer Peter David. Peter, welcome. Glad to be here. It is so good to see you. Happy uh, to be here. People know you as writer of The Hulk, X Factor, um, and you also worked on Young Justice, the yes, animated series? I did indeed. That's coming back. I wrote four episodes for the series, um, and yes, it is coming back. I can proudly now announce that, which was announced a week ago, that uh, Young Justice will be coming back for a third season. Excellent. Are you going to work on the third season, perhaps? Can't tell you right now. Okay. Possible. It's possible. I, I see you have some scripts laid out here. I do. Some are from Young Justice. Why don't you tell us why you have those scripts laid out? I thought that I heard that yesterday. It was very interesting. <clears throat> well, I have them laid out so I can sell them, basically. Um, if people are interested and they can come by and uh, buy one, I've got three of the four here. I've got Bloodlines, which is uh, the one that introduced Impulse. I've got Secrets, which was the Halloween episode that had Secret and Harm. And I have Intervention, in which they team up in order to free the Blue Beetle from the negative influence of the Scarab. Okay. Are people looking to buy scripts to not just to have a, a piece of the show, per se, but also to learn how to write? Are they interested? Oh, yes. Uh, people buy scripts for any number of reasons. Some of them because they've never seen scripts before and they're interested in the format. Others are interested because these are actually first drafts, which means there's things in there that got cut either to save time or to save money. So people feel as if they're getting, you know, an extra bit of young justice, that sort of thing. Okay. 
You know, I remember um, back in the day, hmm. I think it was Comic Buyer's Guide, you used to have a column, but I digress. Yes. And that was probably the first thing I turned to ah. when I picked that up. And you made a lot of predictions back then about where the industry was going, and one of them was about comics, I believe, if I recall this correctly, rebooting like every year and having a new volume, possibly. Uh, no, I th no, I think what I said was that that's what I would do. What you would do, okay. Um, everyone seems so obsessed with number ones that I said what I would probably do if I were ever in charge of a comic book company is I would just do away with numbering altogether. I would just have everything labeled by the month that it came out. So I'd have, you know, every year would be January 2017, February 2017, and so on. Um, that, that, to my mind, would take away all the, uh, the obsessions about number ones and get people to focus instead on the actual comic books. But you would have the, the labeling of the months so that anyone who knows how the months run would be able to know what order to keep the comic books in. It does get confusing now to know which order, especially when there's crossovers, right. to read the books. Exactly. <laughs> um, is there anything out there that you're currently reading or following uh, in the comic industry? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I have various titles that I enjoy. I mean, I don't want to start reciting them. But, um, yeah, I have various titles uh, being published by all companies that uh, I'm currently reading and getting a kick out of. Is there anything that you're working on that you want to share with us? Well, I'm currently writing Spider-Man 2099, something that not a, not a ton of people seem to know. Really? I've had many people coming up to me and, telling, and asking, so what are you writing now? And I go, Spider-Man 2099, and many of them are completely surprised. They're oblivious to the fact that we've been doing this book for three years, um, which is kind of disheartening. It's really disheartening when people who are Spider-Man 2099 fans are coming up to me and going, they should really bring back Spider-Man 2099. I'm going, dude, you know, I'm writing the book. I'm also writing Stephen King's Dark Tower, and I have some other projects that I'm not at liberty to discuss at this point. Yeah. Spider-Man 2099, I, I read that back in the 90s, and I picked it up when it came out again. I was really excited Good. to see that the character was coming back, because I, I thought, you know, I like that different spin on, um, I think it was Miguel O'Hara being yes. the Spider-Man, and uh, having that... Uh, the, that different suit, different way of getting the powers. Yep. I, I, I'm surprised people don't know about it. So now you know. Yeah. If you don't know, you're hearing it from us. Mm -hmm. It's out there. Pick it up, support it, so it keeps being published. It's a shame because there's a lot of books out there that are very good that if someone's trying something new or different, if it's not following the same old, same old yeah. pattern, they just don't thrive. They, don't, they just right, can't exactly. get, a, get any space on the shelf. Or they are only interested in books that are part of tie-in events, which is a massive contradiction fans are always complaining about tie-in events, but those are the books that they buy. So, you know, I, I, if they would support books that were not part of tie-in events, that would help diminish the necessity for the tie-ins. But as long as the tie-ins are pretty much the only books that they're buying, there's going to be tie-in books. To date, what has been the work you're most proud of? I don't know. It's like saying, what child am I most proud of? Right. I know. I have, I have various works that... that uh, that I'm proud of. I mean, you know, my run on the Hulk, 12 years. If I had to pick one thing from the Hulk, it's a Future Imperfect, which yes. I worked on with George Perez. Um, I, I enjoyed writing the Atlantis Chronicles for DC Comics. That was a great deal of fun. A Fallen Angel, a series that I wrote for DC and then for IDW. I'm very proud of that. Um, you know, the, but really, I really enjoy whatever it is that I'm working on at the time. I mean, I read a, an article many years ago that said that 85% of Americans do jobs 
that they're really not interested in, that they don't care about. They do it in order to pay the bills, but they're not really happy with what they're doing. I'm one of the lucky 15% who does a job that he loves and gets paid for it. And, you know, I, I try to never lose sight of that fact. And we appreciate you doing that job and making our lives more joyful by having those stories for us. Happy to do it. And, and one last question. Um, sure. You're also writing novels. You, you've had been oh, writing yes. novels. Why don't you tell us about some of the novels that are out there? I see you have Star Trek. Yeah, well, it's a Star Trek novel that I have. I have various books that we have been published. Um, I have a book called Artful, which is right over there, um, which is a, not updating is not correct. It's a sequel to Oliver Twist. But what happened was I noticed some interesting things when I was reading Oliver Twist one day. I have no idea why I was reading, I just was. I noticed some things about Fagin. He never comes out during the daytime. He never eats anything. He never drinks anything. Bill Sykes even comments on the fact that he never drinks anything and buys him a drink, which Fagin then proceeds to not drink. And at one point, Fagin is described, and this is in Dickinson's book, as having no teeth except for a couple of fangs, like a dog's. And I'm reading all this and I'm going, holy crap, Fagin's a vampire. And that's where Artful came from, in which the Artful Dodger learns of a vampire conspiracy in London. And his only allies to try and stop it are a teenage girl who says her name is Alexandrina, which it is, but her full name is Alexandrina Victoria, and she's an ex-queen of England, and an eight-year-old Dutch boy who says he knows everything there is to know about vampires. His name is Abraham Van Helsing. So that's artful, and you can get that off. Of, you, you can get that through Amazon. And I have other books that are also published through Crazy Eight Press, which is a publishing endeavor uh, by myself and a number of other uh, writers in which we put out our own titles and are quite pleased in doing so. Uh, the most recent one that's come out is Pyramid Schemes, which is the latest book in the Sir Apropos of Nothing series. So you may want to check that out. And yeah, I mean, I could sit here and talk about books all day because I've had over a hundred books published. So, you know, I've been doing this for a little while. Well, we appreciate you doing it and keep on doing it. That's the plan. So I know you have a busy day. you got a panel coming up. Yep. So I'm going to let you get to it. Peter, okay. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Party. Happy to do it. Thank you. And thus concludes my conversation with Mr. Peter David at the New Jersey Comic Expo. Uh, the last interview I have up for this episode, part one of the best of 2016, is at the same convention, New Jersey Comic Expo 2016 on uh, November 19th the day before, and I speak to Mr. Bob Layton. Now, Bob worked for many years on Iron Man uh, as artist, as a writer, as writer and artist, and uh, he also was involved in Marvel Studios' work on the Iron Man movie, and he tells us about that, his involvement and the depth and level of his involvement in the movies, and his prognostication on where the future of comics is headed. And so, my interview with Mr. Bob Layton I am here with Mr. Bob Layton, hard at work at the con. <laughs> hey, Bob. Uh, how are you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. Thanks for squeezing in an interview with us. I know you've been super busy. Oh, this has been crazy, hasn't it? It's been, I'm sure it's very gratifying. They, they, they I really haven't been able to catch my breath all day. You know, so if I, good thing this is audio, so in case I decide <laughs> to urinate, nobody will actually see it. And I can put my reading glasses on. Right, exactly. <laughs> So, hey, tell me about your uh, involvement in the films, the Iron Man films. I know you've had some involvement there uh, with the creation. Yeah, of yeah, you know, it, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's two versions. 
there's the uh, PR version and the real version, all right? Oh, please tell me the real. The real version is, uh, I was the Queen of England. I was basically there. Well, see, they had so much writing on the first movie. Yeah. They had borrowed up to their eyeballs. And there was so, I mean, there would have been no Marvel Studios unless Iron Man was a success. And they actually dragged me pretty much out of retirement to come back to Marvel, to come back there to convince all the fans out there that this was a great production. They should all get behind it because my name has been synonymous with that character for so long. Right. Yeah, so the edict, even though I wasn't even getting along with Marvel at the time, Marvel Studios said, find Bob Layton and be nice to him. Yeah. <laughs> so I did uh, Tamar uh, Tyfield at, at Paramount was like really instrumental in lining up tons of interviews. I was doing it, you know, two, two or three a week, you know, prior to the movie and, and, and little appearances and stuff like that to just, you know, and then I did the DVD specials and all that kind of stuff. It was the Queen of England. Now, I was on the set. Did they ask me questions? Yeah. But uh, did they pay attention to anything I said? No. Of course not. <laughs> you know? It just looked good. It sounded good. You know? Yeah. But the idea that I was there and I approved of what they were doing and that got the fans behind it because it was all part of trying to make it a success. So, yeah, I was basically the Queen of England, man. You know? <laughs> I don't, I don't fool myself. Not uh, people say, yeah, I consulted on the films. Well, that's true. I actually answered a few of their questions. But, yeah, the truth of the matter was they had me there for purely PR, you know, which was fine because I got to do all the easy stuff. Yeah. You know? That's right. Take me back to the early days at Marvel when you first started working on Iron Man. How did you first get that assignment? Because after that, man, you were on it. I mean, that was your book. Well, it's because I had spent my childhood preparing myself for it. Uh, a little-known story that uh, the uh, uh, Doom Quest was one of the most famous Iron Man stories. Was a story I came up with when I was 11 years old. Oh, really? I had made my—I wish I had kept it. Carefully, you know. I made my own little comic because uh -huh. I was such a fan of uh, the Arthurian tales. Right? I had made my own little comic up and uh, had Doctor Doom, which I always thought should have been Iron Man's villain. Because so, I hated the Iron Man comic. I always thought, of course, so did the fans because it never sold very well. So by the time I got to Marvel, they were going to cancel the series. And that was back in the newsstand days. And the way they did that was they would take their A-list guys off, uh, you know, because they were signed a contract for 12 months to have the mafia distribute to newsstands and stuff. <laughs> and, and so uh, if they knew the book was going to fail, you know, or, uh, they would take their George Tuska off or whatever, move him on to something else, and put a schmuck like me on as a tryout because uh, they figured I couldn't hurt it. They're going to cancel what is it there anyway. to lose? Yeah. So they offered me three books when I got up there, and Iron Man was with one of them. And I'm kind of like, can I change a few things? Because I've spent my entire childhood kind of figure out. Because it should always have been about Tony Stark. It's not about the suit of armor. No one gives a damn about the suit of armor. I, Every kid growing up, you if I gave you a choice, would you rather be Iron Man or Tony Stark? Oh. Yeah, Tony Stark, yeah, come exactly. on, that's the life. That's every teenage kid's <laughs> dream, right? All the girls, all the money, the money, all the toys, and everything. you're the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, you know? And that's so, what makes it interesting. That's the, that's the big difference. Yeah. That is the big difference between everything but before and mine. Was that it was about Tony Stark, not about Iron Man. You know? 
And so after um, Iron Man, a lot of, a lot happened between them. But then you uh, eventually were at Valiant and became the editor in chief. No, I was. I went over there to co-create the characters. I was, at, you know, asked to do that because that was one of my main functions at Marvel. Was uh, the, I was their like resident idea man. Whenever okay. somebody needed a a plot, they had a plot problem they couldn't solve or needed a concept idea, they always came to me. So uh, the idea was for me to come over there. That's why I left Marvel at the height of my popularity. I went over there to to start Valiant because <coughs> they needed concepts. That's something I do. That's that's my forte. And EXO was one of them. Oh yeah. Although I, originally it was just Manowar, and John Hart's the uh, VP of marketing came up with the idea of the EXO. So during the the boom. Our book would be placed right next to the X Men, which was the number one selling book. Ah, you know, so it's like great marketing stuff, right? So yeah, it was my original cousin, which was Man of War, and it became uh, John changed it to EXO, so we'd be right next to the X Men, and I guess it worked because it was our best selling book. Yeah. You know? Other concepts you worked on for them? Well, everything except Harbinger. Everything in Harbinger okay. is at least fifty percent mine. You know. The Shadow Man too. Yeah. I mean, Jim was a good writer, but he's not a real high concept guy. You read New Universe. <laughs> I rest my case, okay? <laughs> he just wasn't a very good high concept guy. He a damn good wordsmith, you know, one of the best in the business. But he needed me, you know? So, and unfortunately, he was also one of the worst businessmen in the world, too, and quickly ran the company into the ground. Went to blow through the investment capital that we had, so uh, he wound up in hot water with the uh, with the venture capitalists that financed us. His departure had nothing to do with anything else, you know, other than the fact that everyone hated working for. Him. No, I mean I ran the bullpen. I, you know, it's like I said, Barry worked for me. Barry didn't want to work for Jim. He worked for me. Barry so I was running the place anyway. Jim had his little fiefdom there, but it was pretty much me running the place day to day. Because I remember Bozarski told me after he's gone, he's like, a couple times Jim came into him and said, we have to get rid of Bob, and, Jim, and Steve started laughing. Like, <laughs> why don't we just all jump out a window? You know? <laughs> you know? But, you know, look, I, I don't want to disparage Jim, you know? I mean, he's, you know, he's got a probably hard enough life just being him. Uh, you know, it's like... No, I understand. But, and what I was saying earlier was that eventually you became editor-in-chief. I mean, right, you were yeah. the guy then. Yeah. You yeah. ran it. Yeah. And, and we went from being $4 million in debt to making $30 million a year. So I did. I guess something was right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you also had a, com a comics company with uh, Dick Giordano and David Mithlany, uh the uh, Future Comics. Future Comics, yeah. That was a nice little run. Well, it was a great idea that was ahead of its time. I always say that we were the uh, uh, Preston Tucker of the comic book uh, world, you know, because we had a great idea, but unfortunately, the, it was e-commerce in its infancy. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that we failed to uh, account for was the cheapness of comic shop owners. Because... <laughs> 
half of them, as it turned out, weren't even wired, didn't have their stores wired to the internet. They were still using cigar boxes as cash registers, you know? <laughs> and we were trying to do e-commerce with them. The idea, Dickie actually came up with the idea, Dick Giordano, mm-hmm. to bypass Diamond, because they take 60% of cover price. So we could actually sell low print run sales through directly to retailers and still make a profit, you know? It was a way to be an indie publisher. Good, and somebody else will try it one day. You know, I'm sure. But uh, no, I sunk about a half a million dollars into that venture. You know, me and my yeah. friend Skip Farrell, uh, and we're still friends, even though I lost him all that money. But uh, also, Diamond did every dirty trick in the book to put us out of business too. You know, just like if you ever see the Tucker a Man in His Dream, we were the comic book version of that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. I mean, we started getting viral attacks. We, oh, you know, there was intimidation used on on retailers. Yeah, well, because you know, it's they, they operate by credit, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, and I was only told this by by uh, guys who had left Diamond later on that they were told to threaten to call margin on their credit if they bought from us. Oh, squeeze on them. Yeah. yeah. So there was all okay. kinds. Uh, even though I bought my paper in advance at Quebecor, that they were still mysteriously having paper shortages. It, yeah, it's just dirty pool stuff just going on all the time, you know. So yeah, we never really had a chance, even though it was a, a great idea. But at least I tried to do something to change the paradigm. Yeah. I tried to change it because you know it's, it's been status quo for seventy-five years. You know, the same business model, pretty much, putting out these silly little pamphlets for 75 years and just then goes up in price and up in price and up in price, you know, and I tried to do something different. I'm always trying to do something different, you know. And the prices keep escalating. Where do you see the industry going? $7 a comic and it's the end of life when we know it. That's the apocalypse, $7 a I think a that's the, the ceiling that people no, will No person in their right mind will pay $7 for a comic book. What do you think a 22-page pamphlet. Yeah. What do you think will The trades will take over or digital Well, no. Here, here's my argument. I, I, I do lectures about this, Chris. Yeah. Uh, when, I, when I do cons. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, for, I can get in my car, drive around, use my GPS, find a, a comic shop, a smelly little comic shop somewhere. And, and go buy a copy of Daredevil for $4.99. Or for a couple of dollars more, I can get a subscription to Netflix and watch both seasons of Daredevil several times, uh, you know, over, and which is a much better product. Which makes more sense? Which would you do if you're the buying public? Yeah, no, I, that's a good point. Yeah, because the models... The, the comics don't even resemble the products that are on television and in the movies. No, they don't. So if you go there and make that destination buy, you're still kind of like scratching your head at the end of the day. I think at $7 for the little crappy pamphlet, that's the end of life as we know it. Plus, you got to remember another thing. There was a very telling thing that just happened recently. Did you see Doctor Strange? I did. Okay. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> In the opening, the opening uh, card for Marvel Studios, their new opening card, there's no connection to the comic books in it. They've, yeah, they've, yeah, they did change it. Yeah, that's that's a tell. Yeah, that the comic books are no longer necessary to them because mm-hmm. they created a universe that makes a whole lot of money as opposed to the comic book world. 
they're divorcing themselves from their origins now. That's a tell. Yeah. If I've been in business for a lot of years. If you do the P&Ls on the comic book industry, the average comic sells about 15,000 copies. At some point, as the price goes up, at some point, and the, and the, the sales go down, there is a tipping point. I, that's why I got out years ago, because I, I, I didn't see it in the current business model, I saw no, no resolution to it. There is, however, solutions. One they already do, which is the cyber world, you know, and basically a digital uh, stuff. But it's not the same as owning it. For 30 years, France, Italy, uh, Belgium, I can go up and down the list, have successfully published gorgeous full-size comic books, hardbound, if you've ever seen Lieutenant Blueberry or, or, or uh, uh, 1010, gorgeous products that survive, that you don't need to put in a plastic bag, that's a contained story uh, that they give the artists and writers an advance on royalties. They have a higher price point so the retailers make more money. They sit on the shelves forever and can be reprinted in their in perpetuity. And you, when you're done, you put it up on your shelf with your James Patterson novel and you don't need to put it in plastic and sun backing and sunproof, UV coated, whatever. It's because it's a friggin' book. But it's also printed large enough since we do art. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an art book too. Gee, what a novel idea that Europe has been doing for 30 years. And they're grabbing readers, not just collectors. Yes. You know, it's not and these are placed. adult readers. And yeah. You go to France, these are adult. And you go to a bookstore in France, it's mahogany and gorgeous, clean. You know, it's beautiful. You don't see all the crap in there and stuff like that. It's like an adult bookstore. You know, and they have westerns and they have romance and they have, you know, sexy stuff. And they have, you know, action adventure. Just like in a bookstore. And these are comic shops. Yeah. And we used to scoff at them, you know, because we're used to doing volume, volume, volume. But the European model, I think, is the only salvation for the comic industry. You think, really we'll you think we'll ever reach that? You think we'll open somebody our minds will, enough? Hopefully somebody will be smart enough. Maybe it'll be our friends across the seas who'll come over here and bring their business model to us. Because it works over there. Yeah. You know, I mean, Mobius made a living doing it. You yeah. Know? yeah. But I'm saying... That's what we're coming to, yeah. and that, I think that's the solution. I really do. Yeah, something will have that, to change. That, because here's the other thing, Chris. Being in a business, Warner's about to be uh, acquired, right, by uh, AT&T, right? Mm -hmm. So that old thing about, oh, DC doesn't have to make money because they're owned by Warner Brothers. Well, that's no longer necessarily the case. Also, I don't know any business that doesn't have to make money. The reason they always said that was that we were generating intellectual property out of those things. That does not occur anymore. If Bob Layton comes with a, up with a great idea, I don't go to DC with it. I publish it independently. So does every other guy out there. They go to they go to IDW or they go to Image or whatever, and they they find themselves a publisher and they publish it with ownership. Right. Right. So the whole that's a fallacy. We they don't all they do now is turn Iron Man into a 15-year-old girl or give Thor breasts. You know, that, they just keep rehashing the same stuff. So they're not generating IP. There are new, new characters being created. So at some point, 
now that they're giantly and corporately owned, somebody is going to take a look at the P&Ls and say, you know, it makes more sense just to not publish regular comics and and just we have a reprint library that goes back for seventy Decades. years. Yeah. So why are we doing this? Especially some brownos looking for a raise. Why? Believe me, he <laughs> figures out a way they can save money. No, you, I, that is an inevitable scenario. So now, now, if any of your listeners are thinking about co- committing suicide, I would say do not do that. All right, because it's, one, it's a long way off, but two, there has to be a revolution in this industry, just like the typewriter at IBM. You know, at some point we have to grow, we have to change, we have to adapt. That's something they haven't been able to do yet. It's difficult. People hate change. They like the same old, same old. They like exactly. that, they like that consistency, but, you know. Yeah, so you asked the question, the tipping point is $7. After that, I think we're done. Well, you make a very good point. And there are a lot of people now that are doing their own independent work. They own the property. They do self-contained stories now. They're miniseries. They're not doing the same old, you know. The new paradigm for breaking into the business is that you start self-publishing at these cons. You get a booth yeah. and you put Potato Salad Man out, right? And then what happens is some editor will come along. You'll he'll give him a copy of Potato Salad Man. He'll look at it and say, well, you got talent. Why don't you come up and... Uh, do uh, you know Raspberry Man here at DC for us? You know, so you go up and you do two, you do two years worth of Raspberry Man until you build a following or whatever. And you, then you start to realize you're being ripped off by these guys and it's horribly run and and you know you don't get any residuals or anything like that. And so you quit and you go back to public. But now with a, with an audience, you go back to self-publishing, and that's the new paradigm. Yeah, you know. Yep, yep. that's what I see. Yep. <laughs> strange, strange world. When I was doing Iron Man, when I was on newsstands, the average issue Iron Man sold somewhere between four or five hundred thousand copies a yeah. month. Oh, it's dropped it's a lot crazy. now. Well, no, I'm just saying, it was a different world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, what's the great thing is those people are still out there. That's who's going to the movies. That's the people that are yes. they're taking their kids to see this stuff. That's me. People watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., yeah. Yeah. You know, that's the people that's watching Daredevil and Luke Cage on Netflix. Yeah. So what keeps it fresh for you? I mean, obviously, you're here at the con. Well, meeting I, your I, I, I do the con because I love to travel and see my my old comrades. Uh, but I, I don't work in the comic business anymore. I've been in the film business for the last ten years. Uh, I was out in Hollywood. You know, like I said, after the uh, Iron Man stuff, I realized that everybody in Hollywood was a was a geek. So I, you know, I stayed out there. You know, and uh, I worked behind the scenes. You know, the, the pay was better. I learned a ton of stuff or whatever. And now I'm back in Florida where I started. But now with the, the help of Venture Capital, I am uh, uh, in the process of building my own film studio. Excellent. And we're going to uh, make productions and bring film films to the state of Florida. Make, okay. make Florida, try to make Florida a new hub for filmmaking the way Atlanta has, the way, you know, Louisiana has. So uh, I have to change some legislators' mind, but I think I can do that with a ton of uh, influx of money. So we'll see. That's what I'm working on right now. Great. Bob, I wish you the best. And thank I, you, I brother. I appreciate that. Thank you so much and, for your uh, time. Very generous. Thanks to, all, thanks to all you listeners for uh, putting up with me and my pontificating. Uh, we love you, Bob. Thank you all so right, thank much. You, thank you. 
And thus concludes my interview with Mr. Bob Layton at the New Jersey Comic Expo that I did on behalf of Word of the Nerd. I hope you enjoyed those uh, best of episodes from the New Jersey Comic Expo, and there'll be more coming up and other interviews as part of my introduction to the podcast, The Best of 2016, before I get into the new interviews coming up in 2017. And if you want to check out my website, it's creatortalks.com, where I have archived uh, written interviews and also video interviews of some of these very same interviews. Where you'll see a bit more, uh, some other content in those videos. Think of it as the Beatles mono versus stereo recordings. There's some slight differences in each one. Both the uh, if you compare the stereo to the mono, if you're a fan of the Beatles, you'll see that the recordings are slightly different. And I do the same thing with the video version of my interviews, plus some added content, uh, some cover images, some of the things that we're talking about, I actually place into the video to help uh, newbies understand uh, what they're talking about and veterans uh, revel in the joy of these books that they created. So uh, you can check out my website, creatortalks.com, also on Facebook, Creator Talks, and also on Twitter. And my handle for Twitter is creatortalkspod. That's Creator Talks Pod. And if you have any questions, you have any feedback, please uh, reach out to me on Twitter. Probably the best way. You can also contact me through my website, creatortalks.com. And please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the podcast, positive or negative. I want your feedback. And it really does help the show tremendously grow its audience. And the time you take to listen to the podcast is greatly appreciated. So I know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from. And I thank you for choosing this one. And I'll be back very, very soon with more of the best of my interviews for Word of the Nerd with creators, writers, artists in the field of comic books. And so for now, this has been Creator Talks with Christopher Calloway. Thank you for listening.